welcome you. I want to welcome you, whether you are in the room or watching online. It's great to have you here. And uh, continuing our teaching series in the book of 2 Corinthians, Strength in Weakness. And I'm glad to have the opportunity to share with you today. My, my youngest son, Winston, is at the age where everything to be believed has to be proved. If I told him I could jump off this platform, do a flip, and land on my feet, he would laugh because he, he knows I couldn't do it. But he would say, he would yell out, prove it. If he heard his sister Mila say that she could eat a whole, piece, a whole pizza by herself, he would say, prove it. Now, she probably would be willing to do it, and she probably could prove it. But he's at that stage, especially with his older brother, Brayden. Probably internally thinks that Brayden can do anything, can do everything, but it comes out as he can't do anything. That's his attitude. You can't do, you can't do it. Anything Brayden would say, Winston calls out, prove it. Prove it. Turn to your neighbor and say, prove it. Prove it. Yes. We're going to be talking about that today. It feels good to prove it. I don't want to let people down. I don't, I don't, I want to be able to follow through. I want to be able to be, you know, consistent with what I'm going to say I'm going to do. Have you ever felt like you needed to prove something? Prove to your boss that you can get the job done. Prove to your teacher that your dog really did eat the homework. Prove to your significant other that you actually didn't forget their birthday. It's a blessing when we can prove those things. We've proven we are capable, honest, and thoughtful when we can prove those things. I've titled my message, The Blessing of Proof. Because let's be honest, it feels good to be able to prove it. To prove that what we say about ourselves and what others say about us is true. It feels good to prove our supporters right and our critics wrong. But it's more than that. When it comes to proof, there's a component of blessing, and we're going to dive into that here today, that goes far beyond how we feel. So get out your pens and your outlines and prove to your neighbor right now that you're ready to learn. And turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. We're continuing our teaching series called Strength and Weakness. You'll be able to find 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. If you don't know where that is, go to the table of contents at the beginning of your Bible and you can find it there. Or you can go to the YouVersion app and follow along as we go through this text together. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16. That's where we're going to start. Now, we're in the midst of a letter that the Apostle Paul has written to the Corinthian church. And at a point in the letter where he is calling them to prove something about themselves. He's calling them to prove something about themselves. Now, what they are called to prove might feel like a burden to them. And honestly, it might feel like a burden to us as well. But in the long run, what they're being called to prove is a blessing. That's why I didn't title this message, The Burden of Proof. I titled it, The Blessing of Proof. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So what is the church being asked to prove? What is the church being asked to prove? To be specific, the Corinthian church is being asked to prove that they are able to follow through with a substantial financial gift. That's what they're being asked to prove, that they can follow through with giving a substantial 
substantial financial gift. This is a gift, an offering that was going to be dedicated to the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was experiencing difficult times, and this offering would help them in their situation. Not only that, but the Corinthians, they would speak, the offering would speak volumes in their relationship with the Jerusalem church. You see, the Corinthian church was primarily made up of Gentiles. The Jerusalem church was primarily made up of Jews. It was a Jewish church. So it would be significant, this offering, in bringing these two people groups together in heart, in mind, and in purpose. To put it simply, the offering that the Corinthian church is being asked to give would address poverty and contribute to unity. It would address poverty and contribute to unity. And Paul is looking forward to the Corinthian church proving that they can generously come through with this offering. Now here's the deal. It's an offering that they were at one point eager to participate in. It's also an offering that they're fully capable of participating in, and an offering that is now calling for their full participation. The Corinthian church was eager to contribute to this offering, but Paul seems concerned that over the previous year, they may have lost a little bit of enthusiasm to participate. He wants them to follow through with their original willingness he wants them to prove to the other participating churches that, that they can also rise up to the occasion. He wants them to prove it to him that they will do it. He wants them to prove it. Put your money where your mouth is. Be the proof of what you've promised. So in order to help prove it, Paul enlists some influencers to the cause. And this is where we pick up the letter in verse 16. Verse 16 of chapter 8 says, Thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. It's very clear in these verses that Paul never intended to make this gift happen on his own. Obviously, he needs the participation of the Corinthian church, but he also needs the partners that are listed here in, this, in these verses to make it happen. He needs them as well. Paul recognizes how important these partners are in what he is trying to do. It's also something that we need to consider in our own faith. And we'll call that the power of partnership. The power of partnership. He mentions Titus, a fellow minister who has come up a couple times in this letter. He said he not only responded to our request to come, but he would have come on his own initiative. Paul believes it's important that the Corinthian church knows that Titus loves them and wants them to succeed. This proves that Titus isn't just doing what Paul asks. He's truly invested in the church. Paul also mentions in verse 18, a well-respected brother. We don't know the name of this person, but it's clear that we see he's well-known among the churches. Interestingly, Paul says that this brother is not only praised by the churches, but was chosen by the churches to come and help administer this gift. 
This proves that the brother wasn't just some guy with nothing to do and wanted a trip to Corinth. No, he was chosen by the churches. They saw how important it would be for him to be a part of this cause. Paul also mentions another partner later in verse 22, someone who was also confident in the Corinthians and proved to Paul his commitment for the cause. The churches themselves had proven to be partners by their, by their efforts. Last week we saw how the, the Macedonians set the tone for this offering. Look at what it says in verse 2, way back in, at the beginning of chapter 8. It says, In the midst of a very severe trial, the Macedonians' overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. They too were partnering in the effort. And they did so in a sacrificial and substantial way. Paul goes on to say that they pleaded for the opportunity to be involved, to share in the service. They proved their faith in God and proved and their partnership with the Corinthian church. We live in a highly individualized society. It's easy to think that we can go it alone. But we all know Sidney Crosby needs Evgeny Malkin, right? Fred Astaire needs a Ginger Rogers. Bruce Springsteen needs an E Street Band. Wanda needs Vision, and Vision clearly needs Wanda. We know this is true, there, and there is power in partnership. The point is that there is power in partnership, and it's something that we need in our own lives and faith as well. Partners in the faith offer encouragement. Partners in the faith bring clarity when making decisions. Partners in the faith provide examples for us to follow. This is one reason why it's important to be a part of, I believe, why it's important to be a part of a small group here at Pathway. A small group of people to be in a relationship with others, having among other things a partnership in the faith. There is power in that partnership. And we see in these verses that they are not only needed to come alongside the Corinthians, but Paul shows that they have proven character and good motivations to come. These partners are, in their own right, a blessing of proof. Paul needs these partners. And we know this. One reason is because he knows he can't go at it alone. To be honest, he hasn't been the Corinthians' favorite guy. His reputation hasn't always been glowing. They've questioned his motivations and criticized his style. Who's to say they wouldn't continue to doubt Paul or to question what he's involved in? But it's easy to see that when, when people don't want to do something, they can find reasons not to do it. And Paul wants to guard against this. It's easy to see that, that when people don't want to do something, they would find ways to, to get out of it. They might be saying things like, well, I heard he might be keeping some of that money for himself. Or maybe, I wonder if that, they're using that money in Jerusalem in, in the right way. Paul needs more than, than his own word. So the good reputation of these proven partners matter. Look at verse 20. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. Paul recognizes how important the role of reputation plays in this effort. The role of reputation. 
Notice how he gives a reason for these partners. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this gift. We want to avoid any criticism. We we are taking plans to do what is right. He wants everything to be on the up and up, all the I's dotted, all the T's crossed. And he's not messing around with this. He's bringing in proven individuals who represent churches that have proven themselves to help the Corinthians understand that they also can be a blessing of proof. We're taking pains to do what is right, he says. And catch this, in the eyes of the Lord and in the eyes of man. Faithfulness to God is not removed from the visibility of others. Let me say that again. Faithfulness to God is not removed, cannot be removed from the visibility of others. This has always been true of God's people and now more than ever. What you say and how you live does matter. The promises you keep and the promises you don't matter. What you post and what you retreat, what you retweet matters. What are you known for? In your neighborhood, in your work, in your dorm, on your social media feed, what is your reputation? Oh, that's, that's none of their business. I know who I am. But the problem is that if you represent Jesus, you're not just being you. You're introducing him as well. Faithfulness to God is not removed from the visibility of others. Turn to your neighbor and say, I see you. Say, I see you. Because I know, I know you see them. Big reputation, big reputation. Oh, you and me, we got big reputation. We may not be administering an offering that spans cities and ethnic groups, but the principle is there. Are you taking pains to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord and in the eyes of those around you? All right, now let's not get off track. Let's refocus. Paul is asking the Corinthian church to be a blessing of proof by following through with a generous financial offering to the Jerusalem church and has called proven ministry partners to help encourage the church in this effort. He continues in verse 22. In addition, we are sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker among you As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and in honor to Christ. Paul mentions another proven ministry partner to strengthen the cause and to strengthen his point. I love how Paul has this vibe of, just in case you didn't catch what I said a few sentences earlier, let me reiterate how legit this effort is. Titus, my partner and a co-worker among you, The brothers, representatives of churches and an honor to Christ. You've seen the willing sacrifices of churches far less fortunate than you. You have no reason to hesitate in your generosity. You have no reason to be reluctant and should be the most ready that you've ever been. Then Paul brings them a challenge. He says this in verse 24, Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. Now you be the proof, he says. It's your turn to be the proof. Show them the proof of your love. Notice that he doesn't say the proof of your wealth. 
Show them the proof of your love. Prove that our pride in you is legit. Let everyone see this. I believe that Paul knows that the Corinthian church will give. I think we, we can understand that Paul believes that they will give. I don't think he questions that, but I think he's concerned about a couple things. I think Paul is concerned. That's why it seems like he's going on and on here. After all, we're kind of covering a lot of the same kinds of things that Pastor Jeff covered last week. But Paul is continuing to speak on this, and I think he has some some different and important things to say in this text. And one of those things is his concern. I think he's concerned that they won't give liberally, that they won't give freely. He's already stressed the importance of sacrifice in the first half of this chapter, and here he's tried to avoid any roadblocks or any criticism. He's concerned they won't give liberally, and he is also concerned that they won't give willingly. He's concerned they won't give willingly. He's looking for open-handed, not close-fisted giving. And this kind of giving doesn't come from pressure or coercion. It comes from one place. Generous, open-handed giving comes from one place. Do you have any ideas of what that place might be? The heart. I heard it. The heart. Turn to your neighbor and say, from the heart. From the heart. It's not that he thinks the Corinthians will refuse to give. He's concerned they'll be reluctant to give. So he's looking for hearts that are ready. He's concerned they'll be reluctant to give, so he's looking for hearts that are ready. We, this last summer, got a a dog, and I was not totally in favor of it, but all the kids said that they would be willing to take care of it. And for the most part, that's, that's happened. But recently, I had to take our dog Clyde for a, for a walk on my own. It was the first time I had to do it on my own. And he'd been walking enough that I thought it was time for him to go for a good little run. And let me tell you, after that run, I, I, I discovered what it was like to be a, a sled dog. And he discovered what it was like to be a sled. Because throughout the run, he was reluctant to go. Now, he never stopped. He never refused to go with me but he was always just tugging back a little bit, always reluctant to keep going at my pace. Paul is looking for hearts that are generous and ready to give, not reluctant to give. And there's a difference. And I think that we all can be in different places when it comes to giving. We can have heads that refuse to give. We can have hands that are reluctant. We can have hearts that are ready. And some of us are on different places along the way. Some of us have reasons in our head. I'm not giving. There's no way I'm giving to the church. And some of those reasons might be valid. Some of us might be in a place where we know we should, where we'd like to, but our bank account or our plans or whatever it might be, our priorities are are making that a, a reluctant offering. And that's understandable. And there are times when we're in a place where it's a heart that is ready to give. And Paul is looking for that from the Corinthian church. I believe this is the goal of generosity. The goal of generosity. And Paul is going to address that here. Let's look at chapter 9, verse 1. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people. For I know your eagerness to help. 
And I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them, since last year, you and Acacia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this manner should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. The goal of generosity. Three things stick out to me in these verses. Three things that I see what Paul is saying here when it comes to generosity. Three different aspects of this goal. One aspect addresses their past commitment. Their past commitment. One addresses their present challenge. And the last aspect I see addresses their future connection. We see these past commitments. He's been talking about it. How they they were once eager to give. How they were ready to give. He addresses it throughout chapter 8, and he addresses it again here in these verses. In verse 2, he says that a year ago they were eager and enthusiastic to give. In verse 3, he mentions that they said they would be ready to give. And the first goal of generosity for Paul is that it follows through on a promise. It follows through on a promise. This is a church that has wanted to be involved, but the question is, will they be willing to follow through? We're at the middle, approaching the end of March. So this is a great time to see how everyone is doing on their New Year's resolutions. Right? Anyone still going strong, following through with the promises that you made to yourself? Anyone? Do you have proof? Are your biceps bigger? Is your email inbox empty? Is your prayer journal full? It's hard to follow through, isn't it? Or maybe you committed to giving up something for Lent. We're only a couple weeks away from being able to fast. Excuse me, we're only a couple weeks away from being able to feast with what we've been fasting from. Have you followed through with that? My son Braden decided that he would give up everything but uh, water to drink which means that every time he's sitting at the breakfast table and sees his siblings eating cereal, he questions whether or not that was a good decision and whether or not he should have water in his cereal. It's hard to follow through with some of the the promises that we make, the, the, the goals that we have. Follow through can be difficult, but Paul is convinced that it is the right thing to do. And the Corinthians know this as well. This is their past commitment. They just need to hear the encouragement of Titus and the others. And this will help them move from feeling reluctant to being ready. This will be the proof that Paul is looking for, which brings us to the present challenge. The second goal of generosity, and that it flows out of the heart. It flows out of the heart. Paul will speak into this more as we continue through chapter 9. But there's also a word here that helps us understand. He says, if you respond to the encouragement of my ministry partners, then your gift will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Grudgingly given. 
grudgingly given. The idea here is that the gift can flow out and that it doesn't need to be wrung out. You see, he's looking for a, a heart that just naturally flows. It's just that's the way that the heart responds to the blessing of God. He's looking for a heart that flows out like the water just flows out of this washcloth. I don't have to do anything. It's there. It's just generously flowing out. That's how it's responding to the water. He's concerned, though, that they wouldn't be ready and generous, but that they would be reluctant and grudgingly give. And that word grudge, grudgingly, has this idea of wringing out. And he does not want to have to do this to the church. He won't. But he does not want to wring out the generosity because at that point it's not generous anymore. At that part it's not from the heart. Not only would a grudgingly given gift prove to be reluctant and close-fisted, but the gift itself wouldn't be about blessing or unity. Wringing out is not willingness. A gift given grudgingly would mean the gift is centered on the one who is holding the funds, not focused on honoring the Lord or helping the poor. A gift given grudgingly would mean that the gift is centered on the one who is holding the funds, not focused on honoring the Lord or helping the poor. Not only is the receiver of the gift blessed, but the giver is blessed when their generosity flows from the heart. This is the blessing of proof, which brings us to their future connection. The, the third goal of generosity that foreshadows the kingdom. The third goal of generosity that foreshadows the kingdom. We've seen Paul be explicit when it comes to the Corinthians' past commitment and present challenge. We know that what they said they do and we know what they need to do. So does Paul. He knows what they've committed. He knows what they need to do. So do his partners. So do the Macedonians. So does the Jerusalem church. Everyone is watching and waiting for the proof of their generosity. But what is also implied is that what Paul is looking for in this moment is beyond the Corinthian church. It's beyond the Jerusalem church. It's beyond the surrounding churches. It's more than this moment. And I think that is one of the most powerful things that we can take from this text. Earlier in chapter 8, in verse 14, when he's talking about how they should be generous, he says, at this present time, your plenty will supply what they need. And that, in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality as it is written. The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Paul speaks of when the Israelites, during, in the book of Exodus, were receiving manna from the sky, how they were called to get a certain amount, not take too much, not take too little, and they would be provided for. And he uses this as an example that the church would supply what they need, and in turn, there might be a time where they will supply what we need. It's that kind of relationship. This happens in the early church at the beginning of Acts, that the church is giving away so that they can provide what others need, giving their possessions, giving their things away so that others wouldn't be in lack. And the idea is to, to give what you can and to take what you need. 
And he's, he's continuing this, this mindset and, this is, and establishing God's kingdom type of relationship. This is something that goes beyond the Corinthian church. This is something that goes beyond this text. What Paul is describing here is the kind of relationship that the church, that ultimately the kingdom of God would share with one another, that the people of God in his kingdom would have with one another. There's a story in Mark 10. A rich man comes up to Jesus, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what he's asking there is not so much, what do I need to do to get into heaven? He's asking, how can I be a part of your kingdom? How can I be a part of your eternal kingdom? And Jesus responds to him, follow the law. And he gives him a list of some of the the commandments. And the rich man replies back, I've done all of that and more. I've followed through with all of that. And Jesus, wanting to establish what kind of commitment this young man is wanting to make, he said, well then, give all, sell all your possessions and give to the poor and follow me. And the, the rich man is disappointed and walks away frustrated. And Jesus has a conversation with his disciples about how difficult it is for the rich man to be in the kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot in that story. The story is not about how every one of us should sell all of our possessions and give to the poor. The story in this moment is Jesus talking to this rich man and say, are you willing to live a different kind of life? An upside down kind of life. If you want to be a part of my kingdom, are you willing to leave it all behind and follow after me? He says, sell what you have, give to the poor and follow me. He's looking for the kind of relationship that that the rich man would be willing to give it up to follow after Jesus. And that is the kind of relationship that Paul is calling the Corinthian church to have with the other churches, to have with those around them, to be willing to give up whatever they need to follow Jesus, to give whatever they can to follow after Jesus. And Jesus is calling us to this mindset. This is what the kingdom of God relationships look like. It's counterculture. It's not what we're it's not what we're taught to think. We grow up figuring out what we need to do to make sure that we're okay, right? We we grow up, we figure out how I can get what I need to get. But that's the worldly perspective. The kingdom perspective is giving what we can and taking what we need in that relationship that God is calling us to. Jesus, in a sense, is telling that rich man, prove it. Prove it. You want to be in, the ki- you want to be in my kingdom? Prove it. And I'll give you a way to prove it. And unfortunately for him, he walks away. Paul talks earlier in, in chapter 8, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, that you through his poverty might become rich. This isn't just a description of what Jesus has done. As we looked at at last week, this is an example for us to follow. As Jesus, through his poverty, others, we might become rich 
we too, through our poverty, others might become rich. Through our generosity, others would be blessed. Through our readiness, others would be lifted up. This is countercultural. The kingdom of God is the blessing of proof. How will your giving be the proof of your blessing? Are you reluctant or are you ready? Are you closed-fisted or open-handed? It's not the amount, but the heart. It's not about the temporary either. It's about the eternal. How will you prove it? Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for the opportunity that we have in this moment to receive your word. And I also thank you that we have the opportunity to be a people who are growing in our faith and increasing in our generosity. We thank you for providing for us. We thank you for being our supply. We thank you for being our provision. And Lord, I ask that you would help us as we go forward as a people of God, that we would represent the kingdom of God, and that we would be a, a people who are eager and willing and ready from the heart to be generous and prove our blessing. We thank you, God, that you are the one who goes before us and that you provide. I ask that as we go from this place, that you would lead us, protect us, that we would have a sense of your provision wherever we are and wherever we go. I pray that you would help us to trust you in all things. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.